You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Charlie. I know there's a few new faces. I'm one of the pastors here with Missio Tempe. Uh, right now, Chris Gonzalez this morning is preaching over at Missio Phoenix as we're sharing the same series this year across all three Missio congregations, Missio Mesa, Phoenix, and Tempe. We're all doing a series through the story. However, we've taken a pause the last couple of weeks to look at the spirituals. That's what we've been looking at the last two weeks this week and then one more week next week. Happy Valentine's Day to you. I got a critique last week that I didn't mention it was Super Bowl Sunday, so I don't want that to happen for Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day to you or whatever, however you want to celebrate it. Right, right over here, a couple minutes ago from this house, there was this guy that came out with a suit and the most beautiful bouquet of flowers, picked up by his girlfriend or wife with a VW bug that was yellow. It was really the start of a Valentine's Day. But anyways, last week, if you're with us, if you weren't, don't worry, I'm going to catch you up. We talked about this character, this theologian, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. We talked about how last week, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who um, in his German setting and because of World War I and the blame of the war put entirely on Germany's shoulders, there was this pride that was created in German nationalism where the gospel in Germany had been equated with, in many ways, German triumph. It was a form of Christian nationalism that Bonhoeffer was wrapped up in. And then he came over to the United States to study here for a postdoctoral program in New York City at Union Theological Seminary, and he kept connected with, through a classmate, with a church in Harlem called Abyssinian Baptist Church. It was a historic black church in the heart of Harlem. And in many ways there, his Christian nationalism that he had carried from Germany was transformed into having a theology from the margins, from below. He would say in many of his writings and even how he wrote Cost of Discipleship, much of his thinking, much of his living, much of his practice, much of the way he was able to resist the Nazism that was pervading his culture when he went back home was because of his experience at this church, from a theology of the margins, and particularly the spirituals that he heard sung, that he took back with him to Germany. And then in fact, many years later, with his German students, he would play these spirituals that they had never heard before. And one of those particularly that he would play was our spiritual for today, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It might be one of the most familiar spirituals of, of all of them. You've probably heard it in different contexts, in different contexts, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Get this. In Nazi Germany, as uh, many of uh, Bonhoeffer's disciples were listening and, and singing the song as a song of resistance, James K. Smith has this book called You Are What You Love, and he says that we need to tune our hearts to the songs of Zion, not the songs of Babylon. And so they're singing this song as a song of resistance, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, that it was actually outlawed by the Nazis. They saw it as such a powerful song that they wanted to get rid of it. They didn't want people in their churches and the, the German churches singing it. So that's the context for our song today. Um, it's on your handout. We're going to look at it right now. Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Just like we did last week, I'm going to read you the lyrics. I'm not going to sing it, although uh, we could have Keaton and Kenny sing it maybe for us later. That'd be great. Uh, but I'm going to have you look at the lyrics. I'm going to read them to you. And then like we did last week, I'm just going to have you turn to the person next to you or somebody around you. And I just want you to, to, to notice which of the phrases, the lines, the words kind of grab your attention. How could you see this song being a powerful song of resistance, a song of hope in the midst of an enslaved people longing for freedom, longing for heaven, as you'll see. 
So let me read you the lyrics from Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. It says this, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Just to pause there, this is a reference to Elijah the prophet who was taken up via chariot in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. I looked over Jordan. Jordan was this famous river in the biblical story where God's people crossed into the promised land over the Jordan. Then John the Baptist, if you remember in the Gospels, he was baptizing people in the Jordan, preparing them for a new exodus. I looked over the Jordan, and what did I see coming forward to carry me home? A band of angels coming after me, coming forward to carry me home. If you get there before I do, coming forward to carry me home. Tell all my friends I'm coming to, coming forward to carry me home. I'm sometimes up, I'm sometimes down, coming forward to carry me home. But still my soul feels heavenly bound, coming forward to carry me home. So this is our spiritual for this morning. I'd love for you to turn to some people around you or just the person right next to you as it's cold and you're probably not wanting to move around. That's okay. What's a phrase or a line that kind of grabs your attention? How could you see this song being super formative for the context that we're talking about here of people that were enslaved in our country who would sing these songs of hope and resistance and then even as Bonhoeffer was singing it in Nazi Germany. All right, turn to the people around you. We'll talk for a couple of minutes and then I'll gather you back together. Well, good. You guys are starting to to get a taste of it. I think this is a really powerful uh, spiritual. Let me give you you some context of where we've been going so far. Uh, In week one, we heard from Pastor John Talia from Roosevelt Community Church. He looked at weight in the water, and the two main themes we learned about was that God is a God of deliverance. He delivered his people through Moses out of slavery in Egypt. And then secondly, He's a God of healing. In the John chapter 5, where uh, those who were lame or crippled would go into this water and it would be stirred up and people would experience physical and spiritual healing. And then last week, we looked at sweet balm and Gilead. I know a lot of people are saying I was saying balm, like you drop a bomb on something. I'm saying balm. I'm trying really hard with that L in there. Sweet balm uh, in Gilead. There's a balm in Gilead. And in this song, we looked at two themes, the suffering God and the soothing God. That God is a God who enters into the suffering alongside us. And also like a a balm, like an ointment, he's a soothing God. And we saw all of this from Jeremiah chapter 8. And then today, what I want to look at with this spiritual specifically, as we look at swing low, sweet chariot, is I want to talk about both this idea of heaven now and heaven not yet. Heaven now and heaven not yet. Let me show you from the song today. Heaven now. In heaven, not yet. In uh, in English language, we have a lot of words that have two meanings. Let me give you an example. Right now, if if Clark and I are in the car and we're driving in downtown Tempe, I might say, hey, Clark, look, there's a crane. Look, there's a crane. Well, if you're in downtown Tempe, you might realize, oh, yeah, there's all these cranes that are building these huge skyscraper buildings. So you might think, oh, yeah, like I love cranes. I have one of those little ones in my backyard. There's a crane. Or... This time of year in the winter, I might say, look, there's a crane, like an actual bird. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen this. In the wintertime in Arizona, we have all these different cranes that come around. We even saw one at Kiwanis Lake the other day. It has two meanings, depending on the context. In the same way, a lot of the spirituals had a double meaning. They were encrypted in some ways. They aren't just what it it seems on the surface. Let me show you in the spiritual specifically. Many scholars would say or different people that are familiar with these, these spirituals would say that the theme of chariot, chariot had a double meaning. 
chariot was, uh, like Keaton said, Harriet Tubman, who had rescued 70 different slaves into freedom. The chariot was, in a sense, the road, the underground railroad to lead people to freedom. And so this is a song that has this kind of underneath uh, song of resistance, subversive in many ways. When it says, I looked over the Jordan, the Jordan River would would be a reference to the Ohio or Mississippi River that would be used to get to freedom as well from the south to the north. And then lastly, one other thing here, uh, a band of angels coming after me, similar to what Keaton was saying, yes, like there'd be people chasing to bring back into captivity, but there'd also be men and women along the Underground Railroad Trail that would help along the way, a band of angels that would help people get to freedom. Notice here what's happening. There's this picture underneath of not just heaven maybe in the future somewhere, although we'll talk about that, but in a sense, heaven now, breaking into the present through this spiritual. One of the critiques that uh, comes against uh, these spirituals, especially uh, in, in a variety of circles, especially with our current conversation around justice, is that these spirituals were just simply otherworldly songs. They weren't concerned about justice now. Even one of the critiques that Dr. King might, often would get is that In a sense, he was too hopeful for what was to come next and not urgent enough about the desire for justice now. But notice in these songs, if with this double meaning, the idea of justice in heaven now, if you were to put it that way, is pervasive. That there is a double meaning here of, yes, there's a hope for the future, but there's hope for right now, freedom right now, justice right now. Listen to these three quotes from three different uh, black scholars around the spirituals. The first one says this. It says, the spirituals were communicative devices about the possibilities of earthly freedom. Miles Fisher, another scholar, he, he did a lot of work on the spirituals. He says this, heaven for early black slaves referred not only to a transcendent reality beyond time and space, it designated the earthly places that blacks regard as lands of freedom. Heaven referred to Africa, Canada, and the northern United States. And then Diana Hayes, who has this awesome book called Forged in the Fiery Furnace, really awesome book. She says, the spiritual sung during the time of slavery were not just sorrow songs, uh, one of a, a famous black scholar, he, he calls them the songs or spirituals were sorrow songs, which is true. They weren't just sorrow songs, though. She says, singing about a faraway, they weren't just sorrow songs, singing about a faraway heavenly home. These songs were, in actuality, subversive, both in intent and in practice. Yes, heaven in the future. And don't worry, we're going to talk about that in a second. But also tasting heaven now through these spirituals as well, tasting freedom and justice now. In the early 1900s, uh, 90% of the African-American population lived in the South. From the early 1900s all the way until the 1970s, there was this great relocation happening across America. It's estimated, unplanned, no one was working together to do this, but it's estimated that 6 million African Americans moved from the South and fled to the North and the West. 6 million. So at the end of the 1970s, 50% of the African American population lived in the South and 50% lived in the North. Radical transformation as all these different people fled for opportunity and freedom in 
the north and in the west. There's a really awesome book. If you want a recommendation to hear some of those stories, I can reference that for you later. But this is this pervasive thing happening in the United States. And and the reason I bring this story up is not just to tell you some cool story of what happened in our country's history, but to tell you that many of these people believe, yes, heaven was for the future. There was a longing for what when Jesus would come back and make all things new once and for all. But there was also hope to taste heaven now in the present, to find freedom and justice now, at least in some small way. In the uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, Jesus has just been baptized. He uh, comes out of the water. He hears the voice of the Father, and the Spirit descends on him. The Spirit was this picture of the end of times, that when the Spirit came, that that means that the kingdom was coming. And Jesus, when he comes out of the water and begins to start his ministry, empowered by the Spirit, victorious over in the wilderness, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Sarah mentioned the liturgy, if you're a follower of Jesus today and you're, and you're listening in, there's, again, this picture of, yes, the kingdom is going to come fully in the future, that right now we don't experience the fullness of the kingdom. There's still sickness, sin, death, horrible suffering in the world. And yet, Jesus announced the kingdom has broken into the present. Heaven has broken through, to use the phrase that the Jesus Storybook Bible uses. Heaven has broken through. And for these early slaves singing these songs, they believed that reality. There was hope now and not yet. Here's my first challenge for you. I've been trying to give you a challenge as we think through these different spirituals. As we think about heaven now, here's my challenge. This week, and some of you did this for Surge already this year, so you can do it twice. This week, I want you to spend 30 minutes researching an area of injustice in the city that you live. It could be anything from housing to poverty to uh, some kind of stewardship question. It could be about water. Whatever you want to do, research an area of injustice in your city for 30 minutes And then imagine for a moment, as you're listening and you're praying through that area of injustice, what would a taste of heaven look like now in that area? How could you, empowered by the Spirit, through the resurrecting power of Jesus himself, how could you play a role of people experiencing heaven now in that area of injustice in your city? It's not just for the future, but the kingdom, as Jesus said, has come now into the present. Yes, not fully, but a taste that we get to partner with Jesus in. So that's my first challenge for you. Research an area of injustice and see how a taste of heaven might be able to come through in that specific area. But as you know, and as we experienced this last year in our world, as we still are in the middle of a global pandemic, heaven has not come fully. Heaven, yes, we can taste now, but there's still a not yet. And not yet. Even I've just been reflecting this year. I was thinking about maybe sharing this next week, but I guess I'm going to share it now. Just for the fact of our country in mourning in many ways and around the world, there's going to be close to 500,000 people soon that have lost their lives over the last year and a half. 500,000 people. Gosh, what deep mourning and suffering and pain that people have experienced. And some of the nurses in our midst here have seen it on a day-to-day basis the suffering and sickness of the world that 
that, that death is the great enemy. So there's not just, yes, a taste of heaven now, but there's got to be a heaven not yet. This isn't, it isn't all figured out if you've looked around and in your own life. If you notice, one of the main themes from the spiritual is the word home. Do you guys notice that? Home. It's repeated like, I don't know, five to ten times. Home. Here's my question for you, just to ponder uh, quietly and to yourself. For you, this is, a, is a, probably based on personality. For you, is home more about a place or about the people? When you think about home, what is it? And yeah, you can't answer both in your mind. Just, just pick one. Is home more about a place or a people? Like, ah, this is, this is what would be home for me. Place or people? One of the most, I would say, disgusting, ugly practices of slavery in our country was the reality of people being forcibly displaced from family members. Once uh, uh, Africans were transferred via boat across the Atlantic, come to the U.S., and then put on the auction block. Often the practice would be simply just to begin to tear families apart to the highest bidder. Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, when he was born, he was torn from his mother because his mother was an able worker in the fields, and she was needed in the fields. So he was torn from his mother and given to his grandma. And then at the age of seven or eight, because now he was old enough to work and to contribute, he was then torn from his grandmother to never see either of them again. Just for a moment, can you imagine what that would be like? To be forcibly displaced from the people that you love most, even an infant, a newborn in some cases. The reason I bring this up is not just to share a really hard story of slavery, but to share why the, the idea of home would be such a powerful theme and image in the spirituals. Because home in the context of the spirituals would be a place not only of restoration and redemption, but a place of reunification. That long after the Civil War, men and women searched far and wide to find family members that they had been displaced from. Home was this powerful picture that one day, as it says here, tell my friends I'm coming, soon, I'm coming too. One day I'll be reunited with those that I was displaced from. Heaven isn't just for now, but we need it to be for not yet as well. In the, uh, in the book of Acts, right after the Gospels, Acts chapter 1, Jesus has resurrected from the grave he has given his commission to the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And the disciples are still kind of confused as they are throughout the Gospels. And, they, and he, they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, hey, Jesus, the kingdom is supposed to come now fully. That's what the promise was. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has placed, but you will be my witnesses, empowered by the Spirit to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The kingdom has broken through, Jesus is saying, yes, but not fully, not yet. There's still a longing for the kingdom to come fully and for God to do his restorative work over all of his creation. That work was still to be done. 
So here's my second challenge for you. If we believe, yes, that heaven is now and we get to work in light of uh, the spirit and the, and the power of the resurrection of Jesus towards areas of injustice in our city, this, to embody this gospel justice in our midst, to bring heaven, a taste of heaven now, but knowing that there's, it's not yet, it's not fully. My second challenge for you is this. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. I don't know if Lent this year snuck up on you, but Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday coming up. For many of you that are in missional communities, you're going to be gathering for a meal in some form or way, maybe that Wednesday night. Here's my challenge for us as a church. My challenge for us, if we're going to grow as a people, not only to believe that heaven has broken in now, but it's a not yet, one of the most powerful ways we can practice that is through fasting. It's through fasting from from eating food. Now, if you can't eat food for some kind of medical reason, I'm not saying to do that so that you end up in the hospital. Don't do that. You can fast from something else. But if you can, fasting from food becomes a powerful reminder that as we feel different hunger pains in our body, it creates for us a reorientation of our longing for the kingdom that is not only here now tasting, but one day fully. I know even for one of our missional communities, they've actually practiced a rhythm of fasting week to week as they lead up to their family meal on Wednesday night. So that's my challenge to you this week, as a family or as an individual, to fast from Tuesday night at dinner, after you eat dinner, don't worry, eat as big dinner as you want on Tuesday night, and then it's a 24-hour fast, so Tuesday dinner all the way then to Wednesday dinner. 24 hours, don't worry, you get to sleep the first like 10 hours of it, that's pretty great, or maybe six hours if you just had a baby in our midst, but, or four hours, I should say, but you get to sleep a good part of it, but then that next day when you wake up and you know what, you'll be like, oh, this is easy. This is really good. I'm, I'm doing a great job. Everything's going good. Then you get to like 11 a.m. noon and then it starts to really kick in. And those last five hours are really painful. But would those little hunger pains, like I said, be little reminders of us trying to bring our longings and our heart's desires towards the coming of the kingdom? That a physical reminder is often the gateway to have a spiritual reminder. So first, research an area of injustice in your city. Second, practice fasting together as a community with us Tuesday night and then into Ash Wednesday to start your Lenten season as we lead up to Easter. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to have just one one conversation and I'm going to lead us into communion. I want you to turn to the person or some people around you As we think about this longing for heaven, not yet, I want you to turn to people around you, and just for a moment as a thought experiment, I want you to imagine what a heavenly neighborhood would look like, would be like. Who that's left out currently would be there? What kind of work would you do together? And what kind of stories would you celebrate? Just imagine for a moment, and we're really, it's, it's hard for us to do this often, but imagine what would it look like when heaven and earth become one, what, what kind of neighborhood, what, what kind of stories would be told? What kind of people would, there, would be there at your table? Just, just think for a second. Just, there's no bad ideas. Just throw something out to the person next to you, and then we'll close together. If you guys have been reading along with us in the, in the gospel or the Genesis and Exodus reading plan, the last week we just finished the book of Exodus, and those last 12 or 15 chapters in Exodus are probably one of my least favorite parts of the entire Bible. I know that's, your pastor probably shouldn't say that. That's not good, but... But it's the dimensions of the tabernacle. Paul was like, I love this stuff. This is really great. All the dimensions. God's intentional. Thanks, Paul. 
that is really true. But as we were reading through it, uh, I was struck by just the importance of the tabernacle because in the story so far, I know we started in Exodus first, but in the story so far, God's people had heaven and earth in the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. But then it was separated. Heaven and earth became different spaces from Genesis 3 on. And the tabernacle, in a sense, was a place that would touch heaven and earth together again. That is where God's presence dwelled among humanity. This is why in John 1.14, it's the most powerful words when it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. As Eugene Peterson, this is why you're talking about the neighborhood. The Word became flesh, as Eugene Peterson says, and Jesus and God moved into the neighborhood. Every week we come to this table on my right here to taste just for, just for a moment that heaven and earth have come back together. That in Jesus' life, his death, his burial and resurrection, heaven and earth have joined together. The kingdom has come now, yet not fully. And so we come to this table to remember the forgiveness that we've been offered, that we've been reconciled both to God and to one another. And then we get to share that ministry and message of reconciliation to the world. But it starts with this table. The table represents so many different things. And at this table, you don't eat a full feast, if you remember and notice. You eat just a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice. But here's how I want you to think about it this week. You eat this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice to represent Jesus' body and blood because the kingdom has not come fully. You just taste it now. So that I hope when you come up here and grab the communion elements and you go back to your seat, it would actually create in you a longing for the full feast that is to come. That one day you won't just get a little cup of juice and a little piece of bread. It will be the most lavish feast you've ever been in. It will be in the middle of the street with one long table. King Jesus will sit at the end and he will welcome you into his kingdom. We will tell story after story after story of how he's rescued and redeemed not only us, but his entire creation. It starts with this meal as we get to taste it now and this meal nourishes us into this week as the spirit comes through the wind and blows us through this week would you come to the table and feast with your king come to the table my friends